from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. You are listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. It is the holiday season everywhere you turn. And with the new year fast approaching, everyone is reflecting on their biggest milestones from the past year. And here at WWNO and WRKF, we wanted to do the same thing. So we're revisiting some of our favorite stories, giving you a little bit of information on how they came together. And for more on that now, we're joined by Louisiana Considered's Alana Schreiber. Thanks for being here, Alana. Thanks for having me, Carl. So you're finishing up your first year here at WWNO. What are some of the main things you've observed and learned over the last year? I've learned a lot. The one thing that I've definitely learned from you is that there is a national day for everything. I mean, there's Donut Day, Oyster Day, Violin Day. The list just goes on. But I think my favorites come back to March and October. Especially in October, it was the National Heritage Month for so many different groups of people. And you took the time to take a deep dive into Louisiana immigration history. March, of course, is traditional for the Irish with St. Patrick's Day and for Italians with St. Joseph's Day. Dr. Kelly started that spring interview with a nod to Tulane's Indigenous Peoples Symposium. And in October, Dr. Kelly acknowledged German, Italian, Polish, and Filipino heritage. And of course, the second Monday of October is National Indigenous Peoples Day. Wow, these are a lot of celebratory days. Well, what were some of the main things that you learned from Dr. Kelly? Oh, Alana, <laughs> this goes <laughs> deeply personal. For the reasons, I'll just start with the math. In 46 years, I have relocated, and I mean relocated sometimes thousands of miles, about 26 times. So I've learned sort of a personal lesson about having to adjust to a new life, having to move on, having to be transitory and mobile. And it reminds me, as she does, that we all came from somewhere else. Uh, I love talking with Laura because she brings the story of our, and by our, I mean humanity's willingness to move when the conditions warrant. The land dries up, the bullies take over, the water rises. That human drive, not just to live, but thrive, that's always something that impresses me. Many of our ancestors boarded flimsy buckets of bark, kind of to sail into the unknown, and a lot of them knew they would never return to all that was once so precious. They gave up a lot. Today's immigrants are giving up a lot in hopes that they can make a better life here. We can always use the help here. We're a country that relies on everybody pitching in and doing this together. So that's kind of, that was, that. I'm sorry I went on, but I, I love Dr. Kelly for that. She just opens that door for me personally. Definitely. And, you know, as someone who's also moved around a lot about eight times in two and a half years, what she had to say definitely resonated with me too. Well, well, was there anything that surprised you from the interview? Actually, not surprised so much. Laura has a way of attaching humanity by pegging little anecdotes with the history. I like that a lot in storytelling, and she's a really good storyteller. Well, thanks so much for giving us some behind-the-scenes info on your conversations with Dr. Kelly. Anytime. You know, I think it would be a good opportunity, since we've talked about it, to listen to one of those conversations one more time. Here's the October program now with Dr. Kelly. (laughs) 
This is uh, an interesting topic we're going to talk about because it's immigration generally, but we're going to talk about the fact that maybe we're all a little bit of immigrant uh, because the month of October, let me just go over the list here. It's Everything got dumped into October. Now, we know it's Italian-American mm -hmm. Heritage Month. Columbus right. Day has traditionally been celebrated. Today, actually, the 6th of October is German-American Heritage Month. Also celebrated during this month are it Polish uh, and Filipinos. That's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> and it's interesting because we're going to start with people who were not considered immigrants, the immigrants that arrived in the 16th century. Mm -hmm found the Native American, the indigenous population. It was not Native American at that time. It was the existing indigenous population. They also have an acknowledgement. They do. On Monday, we have Indigenous Peoples Day. So, um, yeah, that's a great place to start because this was not an empty land. It was made up of many, many different nations. Um, and here in the lower Mississippi River Valley, we had um, anywhere from six to eight different linguistic stocks. So that's just different languages as different from Chinese to Spanish, just to give you an idea the diversity of the different nations that lived here before Columbus made his expedition over. So um, so we're dealing with both with, I guess, indigenous as well as immigrants, the people who were here originally and then the people who come after um, for a variety of different reasons, that push and pull factor of um, what brought Germans here, what brought Polish here, Filipinos, Italians, um, since this is the focus of October, we'll just kind of talk about those groups. And, but like so many things, it's so much more complicated than just those titles, right? Because we think of Germany, but Germany as a nation is a very new and recent thing. Germany was made up of, you know, all these kingdoms and principalities. And, I was going to say, I just want to do a yeah. real quick little history lesson. Germany, while the rest of Europe, France, Spain, all consolidated into mm -hmm. very solid countries, yeah. Germany remained these tiny principalities, yeah. and for a long time, Central Europe was a hotbed of wars among these principalities and these different groups. Those principalities included down into the Slavic nations, it included over into Poland, yep. what we considered modern-day Poland, and even east into France and some of the Netherlands and Belgium in that area now. So that German area, when we say German-Americans, mm -hmm. we're talking yeah. about two centuries ago, a pretty broad group of people from Central Europe. Yeah, I mean, even uh, 150 years ago, you know, all the way, as you said, from present-day France, Switzerland, we look at the Austro-Hungarian Empire and its great reaches, Poland and, and what's present-day Germany, um, which means that we're really looking at German-language-speaking peoples. Right, and, and, these, and I just want to put yeah. one more thing in. They came from Hamburg or Bremen. Generally, those were the destination or those were the ports that they left from, and those were German ports. So, if you were leaving Northern Europe, that's where you left. Right. So they're not necessarily coming from those places; they're leaving from those places. And um, and so, when as an immigrant historian, we often look at like what's the push out, what's the pull here, and 
when we look at German language peoples, that gets, again, complicated. And so we have from very early on in the colonial period for Louisiana in 1719 under John Law, when he brings over sort of these Swiss Germans, Alsace-Lorraine, other areas. And we have an area, of course, that we call the German coast um, that they established. But when usually when we think about an immigrant group, we also associate it with a public holiday. So um, if we're looking at the Irish, of course, it's St. Patrick's with the Sicilians at St. Joseph's. But that's more difficult to do with the Germans because the Germans who come here and influence the heritage and the culture and the history of this city are German Jews, German Protestants, German Catholics. They're Bavarians or even German-speaking from Poland. So, so we like okay. Well, what do we what what do we latch on? What do we do? You know, we have we have no central figure. Oktoberfest. We have Oktoberfest. We have drinking beer, exactly, which is what I was going to say, and which is even really Bavarian. So no, on top no, of it, so exactly. so so the German. Um, there are German communities, but I think if you think about German language and that diversity of what they're bringing in then you're kind of, you know, tipping the iceberg there of, of the depth and complexity. And Polish also is the same sort of thing here where when we look at the Polish immigrants who came to New Orleans, um, many of them are Orthodox Jews. And so, and they were both Polish and Russian. Um, so kind of that nation state being problematic and trying to pigeonhole certain groups of people. Um, and then on the other side, you also have a lot of Polish Catholics um, who are coming. So um, different groups with very different backgrounds and leaving their mark on the city, often, you know, synagogues with other aspects, Germans, bakery, beer, um, <laughs> more beer. Um, and even to this day, um, when we see that with places like Bratz, y'all, with Sven, who's from Berlin, who's serving good German beer and good German sausage throughout the year, not just in the month of October. And so when I think about these groups and that language group and nation state, and then we talk about it being Italian American Month and Columbus Day, for us here, um, it, again, Italians were a, a bunch of principalities, and it was Tuscany, and you were Roman, and you were in Naples, and much like Germany and the principalities. Much like you know, Germany, you know. right? And so, and for us, it's Sicilians really who are coming here and who are shaping and contributing to the heritage and the culture of this area and this region. And when if we think about Germans coming in different waves, starting with the colonial period all the way through, you know, the 20th century um, before the World Wars, the Sicilians are coming primarily after the Civil War. And their sort of pull into this area is different um, than we would see with other immigrant groups. Um, it's the end of the Civil War. Uh, slaves have been emancipated and planters were told that there was this docile group of people called Sicilians and that they should bring them in and they will work the fields. And I'm obviously, none of these planters had ever met a Sicilian if they thought that they were going to be docile workers that would just, you know, do as they were told and, and uh, not have any sort of strong 
feelings about feelings about, about what they're doing what they're yeah, doing about, exactly right. and and so we we get that pull of Sicilians in and working for example on the North Shore and working in um, strawberry fields but very quickly realizing the opportunities that were here and the land and leaving those situations and setting themselves up um, in um, different agricultural different fruit businesses and then helping to take over the ports and, and we, you know we look at those kind of industries so again being brought in for one reason but very quickly making it their own um, they choosing their their own destiny here and I, I just want to point out to Europe and the period we're talking about when a lot of the immigration occurred was mid 19th century the mid 1800s yeah. 1848 was a pivotal year for a lot of Europe there was tremendous bloodshed that led to agrarian and food problems. So there were massive populations, northern Europe, uh, toward the later part of the 19th century, the uh, Sicilians, as you mm -hmm. just mentioned, getting away from very, very bad things and coming to what they felt like was a, a future and leaving families that they knew they were probably never going to see again in many cases, not unlike a lot of the immigrants we have today, trying to, to just find yeah. that, that magic moment that changes things. They're looking, it's, it's, it's about opportunity and it's about um, the idea that you can improve your life, your family life, that you can escape um, what can be horrible conditions, whether it's caused by agricultural crisis, war, both things, and, and come here to America. In many ways, that's what America has always symbolized to immigrants, is the land of opportunity. And while that can sound sometimes cliche, it's true, and it's true to this day. Um, the opportunities that are afforded here um, are tremendous. And immigrant populations, whether they're Filipino, Sicilian, German, um, have all come in and contributed to American society and, and to the welfare and the economic and the diversity and all the things that we um, praise and that makes America a wonderful place to be. We've talked about um, European mm -hmm. uh, a little bit here, but there's a surprise element, the Filipino, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, yeah. and that's an early historical mark here in this area. It is, and it's another one that we don't know an awful lot about. Um, we have, um, we're going back to the colonial period, but this time the Spanish colonial period with um the establishment of a community called San Malo. And it's in the area of Lake Bourne. Um, and I think putting it into that larger context of worldwide events, we have Filipinos coming in because it's part of the Spanish Empire. And at this time period, we're part of Spanish colonial Louisiana. And so we have Filipinos that are part of that empire and that the movements within it, and some are coming here, but I also like to, when we think about empire, we sometimes think about it being as a monolithic entity, when in fact, an empire is often made up of nothing but hundreds, if not thousands, of different cultures and peoples and um, language and all kinds of other things that get united under this big umbrella 
are brought together under this big umbrella of empire. And so Filipinos, we know are here. We know this community of San Malo. We don't know that much about it. It would be great to to learn more and to share that knowledge, I think, with the wider New Orleanian, Louisiana um, audience because I think one thing that we love here is how many of these different cultures shape each other and how they lay upon each other and the the food that they bring in. And so with the Filipinos, we do know later that they are very much involved in the shrimping business and the oyster business. And, um, and they spread out not just from the original sort of San Malo community that we know existed, but also into lower Lafouche, lower Terrebonne. Um, and working with different tribes in this area, working with different peoples, bringing their food, their shrimp, their fish, their oysters, interacting with the market, and yet retaining their own identity. Um, as an immigrant historian, when when people are kind of in and out of the market, but government census takers are not down there and other entities, it's harder for us to sort of categorize them and find information and so we rely upon oral histories and I think we should listen to those oral histories more and hear what people have to say especially because so many of these are frontline communities and and we know that some of the Filipino communities were wiped out when Betsy happened right when when Camille happened when Katrina happened when some you know when St. Bernard Parish took on so much water, it affected everybody who lived there. Um, there are indigenous peoples down there today who are fighting, you know, for their place and their homelands. And, um, and Filipinos are part of that too. And we need to learn more about them. And maybe this is the month that we can do so. It is a broad quilt that yes. we live in here in southeastern Louisiana. And we are very fortunate for that because you mentioned food and music. And I think those are two of the commonalities that people consistently find. Wow, I never knew how wonderful that was. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's a whole new world for them. So immigration is a very, very positive thing in many ways. And it's had its its faults and its problems over the years. I'm going to throw you a curve. We didn't okay. talk about this before. I just... As an immigration historian, if George Soros tomorrow or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos woke up and said, I'm going to give a billion dollars to immigration studies in the United States, would that help? What would that do for you? Do you think that that would help at all? I just What, what makes immigration study easier for you? I Always the solution is, oh, well, let's throw money at it. That'll do it. But. Um Wow, what makes it easier? Um, you know, the beauty of, of being an immigrant historian is that you have your foot in two different countries or foot in two different cultures because you cannot study immigrants here, whether they're Sicilians, Irish, Filipinos, without understanding where they come from because people are not blank tablets. They come with them and they bring their language and their culture and their food and they pass these things on to their children and they create these communities based upon these commonalities. But you have to understand those before you can even understand how it develops here. And also, again, as I mentioned, like what are the push and the pull factors? 
um, what what brings this family here, this group of people here? What's that push out? What's the pull to this specific locale? So if I had, wow, if I had money, I would love to go out and listen to the stories that get passed on from generation to generation. We're lucky here in Louisiana that so many communities don't follow that American trend of moving every seven years, right? And that um, we have a changing coastline that is pushing some of those frontline communities away from their traditional lands and to capture their stories. Language would be another aspect to be studying how it comes down, how it changes the influence. It's dynamic. And also how communities decide to um, adapt and enter into sort of more mainstream. Now, mainstream also changes. So for us, if we look at some German families who had the last name of Zweig, they changed it to Lebranche, right? So um, so Lebranche families probably you've got you got German in there. This was this was something, but that that family made a choice, a decision to change their last name be pulled into the French Creole population. How we pronounce things um, also. So Schumberger, which is Schlumberger, um, says something to me about what was the dominant culture at the time and wanting to participate in it and retaining identity. So as you can see by this more broad answer that there is so much that ties into immigrant history. In some ways, it's, it's fascinating because there's social, cultural, economic, religious. There's no aspect because you're dealing with a group of people. So it's not pigeonholed to any one part of history, but it's trying to look at that bigger picture of all of them. Um, and New Orleans is a wonderful place. It's a port city. So it, it's bringing in these different layers. And um, and we have a tendency to want to take it and add another flavor and add another dimension and it would be incredible if we had a center that just looked at the immigrant populations that have shaped New Orleans and this region. Um, people think of New York, but I think New Orleans is much more powerful. It's a major seaport for many centuries yeah. before we came. As yes. <laughs> so so I, in boiling down your answer, I think it's more stories is the simplest way to put it yeah. and that's what we're all looking for is because that just yes. opens our eyes to things laura it is always a pleasure to have you here and the time flies so fast and it does we'll have more immigrant celebrations coming up in the future so yes. i'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon yes and in the meantime everybody else maybe that should be for each week this month try to learn something about one of those groups I you think know that would be that would be a good way to kind of Give a focus on so many different diverse groups and, and figure it out, whether it's drinking beer, having a bit of food, learning more about the Filipino community or the Sicilians. Um, Google a recipe. Google a recipe, exactly. <laughs> and make it. <laughs> Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Uh, the music is from Walter Ostanek. 
Canada's Polka King taking us out here. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. Thanks to our guest immigration historian, Dr. Laura D. Kelly. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Underneath the lantern, by the very gate, darling, I remember the way you used to wait. Major support for Louisiana Considered is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. I'd hold you tight, we'd kiss goodnight, my little.